As we prepare for the preaching of God's word this morning, I will be reading from the New Testament, the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. Please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to the practice of every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the mind and in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in the true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry And do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with another in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Father, as Tony comes to preach today, I pray that you would give him a special understanding, a special knowledge of your word as he professes it to us. Father, open our eyes, open our ears, open our minds, and open our hearts to hear what you have for us this day. Now, Father, I pray your blessing upon Tony as he brings your word to us. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you, Terry. <clears throat> we want to sit in this uh, passage that Terry has read for a bit today. But, and as we begin, I want, to, I want to start with a question. It's actually a question that is not new. Um, it's a question I continue to run into uh, in these, uh, when I think about my own life, when I interact with others, and I think about um, this Christian faith that we walk into today, and the question is this, does the Christian faith make a difference? Does does this faith that we embrace, that marks our lives, that we we revolve around maybe from Sunday to Sunday or from day to day, does it make a difference in our lives? Uh, there are some people that would say, well, <clears throat> Christianity is a set of beliefs, 
And the difference is that I believe something that I didn't used to believe. And that's, that's fundamentally true, and it's, it's an aspect of it. But, but, there's, but it goes beyond that. And the question that I can't walk around very easily is, but what difference does that make in the life that I live? What, what, are, the, what are the ramifications or the, what is the impact of that in my life? And if it's not making a difference, what does that mean? Is it worthwhile? How do you persuade someone of the Christian faith if they can't see that it makes any difference? That's a little bit where Paul is when he gets to Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, for those of you, this, this comes out of left field today, Ephesians 4. If you've been with us, we're in a series, as I mentioned earlier. We, we took a look at 1 Peter 5 and this notion of the humility that is to mark our lives. Let, let, us, let us with humility come to God. Then last week, Nate did a... a, a <clears throat> gave us a picture of what godly sorrow looks like when we do, the humility that leads to repentance. And here we are in the middle of this series. <clears throat> we've, we've examined, to some degree, that downward movement. And today we begin to look at the upward movement of repentance. And, and if you were here, you heard Nate re- refer to <clears throat> these words from the Westminster Shorter Catechism which is a remarkably concise summary of what the Bible teaches, and there are scripture references that that follow along, explaining that this is what repentance is. Repentance unto life, that kind of repentance that leads to life, is a saving grace. It's a grace meaning that we can't do it until it is given to us. It's a grace in that regard by which a sinner, out of a true sense of his or her sin, an understanding of the mercy of God in Christ, so recognizing sin and understanding mercy, does with grief and hatred of sin turn from it with full intention of and endeavor after new obedience. So the movements, downward humility, godly sorrow, and then this shift that occurs that, that leads to what the Bible refers to and talks about new life. There's a turn. There, there's a moment. There's a, there's a movement that occurs when God breaks in to the darkness. Uh, that comes right out of this passage. We'll look at it in a second. But right here in this passage, what Paul is doing is he's urging young Christians to allow this teaching of Jesus to have its full effect in their lives. It's it's to turn it loose that that the radioactive aspect of this new truth do a number on you and let it have its full effect. That's what he's after in in this passage. You could say, in looking at this, that we have a need. And here's, here's the jumping off point. Does Christianity make a difference? Let me ask you this. Have you ever tried to be kind? 
I mean, just have you tried to be kind? Uh, for some of you, some of you have personality types that sort of lean you in that direction anyway. So being kind or, or treating others with kindness comes a little easier to you perhaps. But for a, a lot of us, uh, my grandmother had an expression that I never really fully understood uh, when I heard it as a young boy, but she, but she would say, you know what, that's like, it's like trying to squeeze blood out of a turnip. I, I don't know that you can get blood out of a turnip. I don't think you can. I think that's the point of the story, trying to get something out of something that it's not there to begin with. And when we understand what, what, what biblically kindness entails, virtually all of us would have to sign on and say, no, well, that's not me. I've managed to say kind things, do kind things, but there's a rewiring and a DNA that I do not have. It does not exist. It doesn't flow out of me. And I've faked it a few times, and, and yet there's a kindness that is not me that God looks for in me or can, can expect to see in the one who in godly sorrow has come to him and there's something there now that never existed before. You see, <clears throat> this big picture of the Christian faith includes this notion that at the core of it, there's a shift that occurs. It's from godly sorrow that we explored last week in some detail. Nate did a great job of unpacking godly sorrow. And then what do you do with that? <laughs> what do you do with the godly sorrow that comes our way when we really begin to see, no, I'm not kind. I have faked it, but I'm not kind. Where does it, what occurs? Here's what occurs. The new life that is born of repentance flows from the kindness of God to me and then expressed in kindness to others. You see, it's only when the kindness of God to me becomes vivid and clear that the shift occurs and I move and I moved from godly sorrow into a new posture, and that is the upward movement that Nate referred to last week, and that's where we are today. There's a shift that occurs. The principle is this. It is only <clears throat> when I grasp the kindness of God to me that I begin to see the kind of change promised in the gospel. It is only then. And the corollary is this. To the degree that I grasp the kindness of God to that same degree will kindness flow from my life to others. So if I've got just a nickel, five-cent version of kindness of God for me, guess what my kindness to you will look like? A nickel. Five cents. But if I see the, the magnitude of God's love for me in Christ and there is no price tag... What does my kindness look like then when it's expressed? Well, it's more than a nickel. It, it grows as I can comprehend and grasp the fullness of God's kindness to me in Christ. I think we see that in this passage. <clears throat> um, 
I mentioned, some of you were with us Wednesday night, and I mentioned Jonathan Edwards, and he unpacked this word that I think is an important one. He says, your imagination is the faculty by which you form images of things. We're going to circle back to that in a moment. But Paul gives us some images here to, to, to take, to, for our minds to take shape of. Some things that he wants us to see. The first one is who you were. And then who you are. Then the difference it makes. And then finally the power that it takes. Who you were. Who you are. The difference it makes and the power it takes. Maybe that's simple, but it helps me. Maybe you as well. Who you were. That's where he starts here. Look in verse 17. He's writing and he's writing and he's talking to his readers about <clears throat> Gentiles. Now, that's a word that we don't toss around. The Bible seems to use it more than we do. Uh, there's a reason for that. That was the culture out of which the church was born. In fact, almost 100% of Paul's readers were, guess what? Former Gentiles. So when they get this letter from Paul and he is writing about the Gentiles, he is describing the friends that they've left behind and the people that they once were. <laughs> There's been a shift, you see, a shift of allegiance. A Gentile was someone who was outside the faith. <clears throat> we might say pagan. Paul's not ashamed of using that word in Romans and other places of, of describing those that are outside the faith. And what he's saying to his readers is, remember who you were. Remember your life outside the faith. And, the, and these words that I'm about to lay out in front of you describe not only the friends that you've left behind, maybe family members, but it describes your former life. Listen to these. Darkened. Ignorant. Callous, sensual, impure. Those are hard words. Darkened, ignorant, callous, sensual, impure. That's, that's some of the characteristics of who you were. You know the only problem with that? That's not all past tense, is it? The fact is, he's describing who they were left to themselves apart from God's breaking into their lives and rearranging the pieces and rewiring things and giving them that godly sorrow that leads to repentance and, and life. Um, someone put it like this, our hardness of heart against God leads to darkness of understanding. Think about that with me. Hang with me. Our hardness of heart leads to darkness of understanding. It's one of the reasons that some of the most brilliant people in the world, those who have all kinds of things intellectually going for them, shipwreck their lives. Because with that brilliant intelligence and understanding to a degree is a hardness of heart. That leads to darkness. Darkness leads to ignorance of what is truly valuable and desirable. When we are darkened, we don't see things in the right light. And we don't understand what is really right and true and worthwhile and valuable. And ignorance lays us open to all of the deceits of our enemy. 
the devil, he calls him, who Jesus says is the father of lies. Our hardness of heart against God leads us to darkness of understanding. And that darkness leads to ignorance of what is truly valuable. And ignorance lays us open for lie after lie. And the fact is, we can't change that. C.S. Lewis <clears throat> described this brilliantly in that character, Eustace, that you've heard of before, some of you, in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. The scene that you, we come upon in that book <clears throat> is of Eustace, who's described as a rotten boy, who has found himself in possession of a large treasure, a large fortune. He imagines the life and comforts he could now enjoy. And in his comforts, he falls asleep with his treasure. And when he awakens, Eustace is no longer a boy. He's, he's gone to sleep. He's wrapped himself around these things. And he awakens not as a boy, but as a dragon. The outward manifestation, you see, of his inner greed and selfishness has shown up. And he is no longer a boy, but a dragon. The golden bracelet that he had put on his little boy arm was now constricting his dragon leg and was painful. And it was piercing. And even worse, the physical pain was mingled with the pain of realizing he was now cut off from humanity as a dragon Isolated and alone, he begins to weep, what some observer called hot dragon tears. Awakening to the plight, his circumstances, maybe recognizing, Paul would say, the darkness, the ignorance, the sensuality, the impurity that he could not shake. But in mercy and compassion, Aslan arrives and leads the dragoned Eustace to a garden on top of the mountain and then to a well at the center of a garden. And at that well, Eustace looks and knows that if he could just get into that water, the pain in his leg would be soothed. But Aslan says he'll have to be undressed first. After a moment of confusion, Eustace remembers he's a dragon and that dragons have skins like snakes which could be shed. And so with his new claws, Eustace begins tearing at his dragon skin. He peels off one layer to discover another, and then a third. Nasty, scaly, rough layers underneath. And after three layers, he realizes it's in vain. He will never make himself clean, or get rid of his pain, or shed the nasty skin. When Aslan says... Eustace, you will have to let me undress you. You know, we, part of this godly sorrow is coming face to face with the reality of the brokenness of our hearts and lives. That there's, that there's dragon stuff underneath this veneer that we can't change. That's where Paul says, that's who you were let me tell you, Christian, who you are. You've been recreated. He says that in verse 24 when he's describing the new self. He says, 
You've been recreated. <clears throat> and he describes after the likeness of God. And, and he uses two words, in righteousness and holiness. That's the new you. And that is what you were to put on, Christian. But before you put on, there is a putting off. There is a laying aside. There is a repentance that is more than simply a notion of godly sorrow and what a mess I am. It's actually moving toward that. That's where the upward movement begins is when we are honest with the brokenness of our lives and naming sin for what it is and owning it and calling it what it is and saying, I can't change that. God, would you change that? Would you change that in me? It's interesting language here. There's parallels. You can see it right here when you look at verses 20 through 24, 22 and 24. Paul says to these believers, put off. And he says, if, you, if you're following after Christ, believer, you must make a fundamental break with your past. Paul's predominantly Gentile readers are to abandon their former lifestyle. And that's what those words were. Those weren't just a catalog of incidents. That was a lifestyle. And he says, your lifestyle is different. In fact, when he starts chapter 4, Paul says, he says, therefore, in light of the riches of Christ, that's what he's done for three chapters, this lavish beauty of the gospel. Soak yourself in those three chapters sometime. And then he says in verse as he turns to chapter to chapter, what we call chapter four, he says, "Therefore, in light of what God has done for you, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Walk in such a way, not that you earn that anything from Him, but a manner that is congruent with who you are in Christ. That's the call of God. That's the upward call of God in Christ. Downward in humility and godly sorrow." Upward in newness of life, turning to God and looking to Him, the only one who can change or undress you. To take away those things, to loosen the grip of those things that have such a death grip on you and me. I mean, you know what they are in your life. There are things that you cannot shake, change, and you're not even sure you want to. Because of the grip that they can and do have. Until you see the damage that they continue to do. And then you, in your brokenness, look to him. And there's where the upward movement begins. New life in Christ. There is a new you, Paul is reminding these readers of. To put off the old self and to put on the new. And there's a difference that that makes. And when you do, it's going to show up in your life. And for seven or eight verses here, he unpacks those. We don't have time to, to walk through all of them. But from verses 25 to 32, he then shows, he catalogs some of the ways that this newness shows up in your life. So that rather than fudging the truth, you are a speaker of the truth. You're... He's quoting an Old Testament passage in Zechariah 8 when he, says, when he says what he does in verse 25. A verse that predicts that God is going to renew his people and restore their fortunes. And marking that newness of life is truth speaking. So that becomes 
our dialect. We're, we're truth tellers to one another, to ourselves. God's going to renew his people and restore their fortunes. Speaking truth to each other is one of the ways that that will be noticed. It shows up. It, you know, sometimes you run into somebody and you see there's something different about their life. And Paul's pointing to several examples of noticeable differences. For someone who, and maybe you know someone <clears throat> who, whose words to you are not only always true, you never have to wonder if they're true, but they're life-giving words as well. He, gets, he says that later in this passage when he, in verse 29, he says, it's not bitter or sour speech that's to be avoided. Your tongue gives you the opportunity to bring God's grace to people by what you say and how you say it. And we don't miss that chance. You know people like that. That's a picture of a life that has been altered by the gospel. It does make a difference. How we speak the truth and speak words to one another is one example. How we deal with anger is another. It's interesting here. He doesn't say, don't be angry, which is what we would tend to think or expect. There's a kind of anger that is appropriate. But there's a kind of anger, a more common kind of anger, that is inappropriate, that is wrapped around prejudice and, and selfishness. And I didn't get my way. And the problem is you. <laughs> and that kind of anger is the sort of thing that he says, don't let that go to bed with you. Deal with that today. That's the kind of difference that this makes when God shows up in your life. I've, I'm haunted by words from Proverbs 12, talking about words and, and the impact that they can have. Proverbs 12, we read this. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. You know, I read right over that one many, many times. And then, um, and then I lingered on it one day and I realized my rash words are often like sword thrusts. Some of them aren't spoken, <laughs> but they're like sword thrusts. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. That's the kind of difference the gospel makes. That's not a resolution you make and you see fruit of. It's the kind of change. It's the DNA. It's the rewiring so that words that come out have been formed by the gospel. That's the kind of difference it makes. Generosity is another one he mentions in verse 28. We are to work hard. We are to work honestly in order to have something to give away. That's how he unpacks and, and reconfigures this notion of work in, in this world. We work not only to afford that nice third car, but to have something to give away. Like maybe a second car. <laughs> what, what kind of change has the gospel wrought in you? And what is it? Where is kindness? The kind of kindness I was alluding to earlier that's not just momentary and sporadic, but something that is constant and, and consistent. That kindness. Somebody wrote about this passage, there are all too many Christians and sometimes whole churches that have allowed themselves to forget 
that kindness and mutual forgiveness are the very essence of the Christian community. He's making that point in a letter about Ephesians where unity, if you remember Ephesians, unity is a thrust and a focus of the book. If we're called to unity, as Ephesians continually stresses, it's going to be far easier to obey that call if we're working hard at promoting kindness. Those are the kinds of differences that it makes. I can't remember how many times I have either heard or said Christianity is not a list of do's and don'ts. And fundamentally it's not. But we're in a passage full of do's and don'ts. (laughs) That needs to fit into our understanding of the Christian faith. We don't enter the Christian faith by how many do's we do and how many don'ts we don't. That doesn't get us out of the starting blocks. But Christ is the one who did everything that the law requires, who avoided everything that the law forbids. And it's his righteousness, his do's, his don'ts that become the clothes that are your righteousness. So as God takes away and undresses me and you spiritually, clothing us with the righteousness that is Christ who did these things perfectly, continually, consistently in a way that satisfies the requirements of the law. And then his righteousness is that gift to you, that grace that is yours by faith. And yet, we are called. We're going to look at over the next couple of weeks, what does it mean to then pursue obedience in light of this? Paul hints at it here. And actually, he gives us the mechanism, I believe. Look look with me uh, at verses 22 through 24 one more time. I've talked about two of those, the first and last. Put off your old self, Gentile behavior. Put that off. Put on the new self created in the likeness of God in holiness and righteousness. We're to put off and to put on. And then the question is, but how? How do we do that? How do we... Where does the power come to put off and to put on, to, to, to take these gospel-centered exhortations and live them out? And I would suggest that the answer is in verse 23. There's an expression in verse 23 um, that is in the middle of this put-off, put-on sandwich. Put-off, put-on, in the middle, the meat of the sandwich is this Word picture, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Now that will sound familiar if you read anything of Paul when he says in Romans 12, be rene- let your minds be renewed. But that's not exactly what he says here. He uses an expression that he uses nowhere else. And some have speculated that what Paul is saying here, though it resembles being renewed in your mind, 
to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, he could be referring to your imagination. That has been helpful enough for me to suggest it to you that that's what Paul is doing. Here's the deal. If your imagination, remember Jonathan Edwards handles on that, it's the faculty that you have for your mind to form images. And that is a powerful thing. Some of you at one point along the way in your life imagined what it would look like and be like to be married. There was a picture that formed in your mind. Maybe even the wedding itself formed in your mind. Or you imagine what it would be like to, to get in that school or have that job. And there's a picture that forms in your mind that has a compelling effect in you. When something forms in your mind, it takes, not only takes shape and it occupies space, but it, in, but it impacts you in some way. Um, it was Tim Keller who unpacked this in a, this particular way that was vividly helpful for me. So here it is. You have uh, just left the doctor's office. And you've learned uh, after testing and poking and things like that that, that your, your, uh, your blood pressure is in a danger zone. And so is your cholesterol. And as a result, there's some changes that need to occur. You're going to need a new exercise regimen, and you're going to need to get rid of some of what's in your refrigerator and replace it with a few other things. And you're going to have to make these changes, and you need to do it now. And as you drive away from the doctor's office, you're thinking what this new diet, this new exercise regimen will look like, how you make the adjustments and as you drive by, you drive by the steakhouse. And with the doctor's words echoing in your mind, you look at the steakhouse and you see the smoke coming from the chimney. And you trace mentally that smoke down to the grill. And the new picture in your mind is that juicy steak dripping and sizzling on the grill. Is it lunchtime yet? Um, here's the deal. You're about to make a choice whether to pull in and to enjoy that lunch meal that I've described or to keep driving. And what you do depends on what your imagination lands on. It either remains on that juicy steak or you see yourself somewhere down the road lying on the floor with a heart attack. And if that's the image that takes shape in your mind, at that moment you will keep driving. That's the power of your imagination, the image that forms. And what the Apostle Paul and others who have fed into this thing we call the New Testament continually do is they're painting a picture. In the Gospels, we see the life of Christ. 
We see him interacting with individuals, coming near to the brokenhearted and healing and restoring. In the epistles, we see the explanation of that. In Revelation, we see the the fulfillment of that. And somewhere in there, whether it's the the, the 33-year public ministry of Jesus and his interactions with individuals like you, or Paul's explanation of the finished work of Christ and the beauty and the lavishness of what we await, or the vivid description of it in Revelation. There's a picture there. And when that picture breaks into your life, or maybe a better way of saying is when God breaks in to the darkness of your life and paints that picture, something happens. You see, when the life of God enters your life, Would you expect something that powerful to have an effect? When the life of God is implanted in you, and that, friends, that is the gospel promise that for those of you that are in Christ that have come to Him through godly sorrow to the brokenness and to the cross, and you've received Him, the life of God is implanted in you, and you could and should expect that it would show up. It's not the kind of thing that lies dormant. But it changes the way you interact. It changes the way you... You can't run away from those things that described the Gentile life anymore. And if you do, you'll find yourself in misery in return. Uh, Nate asked the good question last week. Have we ever really, genuinely, fully repented? And I think he was right when he said, no. Not fully Not completely because I don't know enough of the brokenness of my heart to really own it. And I'm exposed to more and more day by day. But but God shows us something that we then come to him and we see the vivid work of the cross was all about that fresh sin too. That I've never outstripped God's capacity to love and forgive. And so Paul concludes this passage with forgive one another. As God in Christ forgave you. You see, that's, that's the radioactive material. The cross. When, when I see, it with my mind's eye, the fullness of God's redemptive work for me in Christ, and there's nothing that I can add to or take away from what he did, the result is an upward movement. An upward movement where there's life where there was not life. There's hope where there was not hope. There's joy where there was despair. And that's why mourning turns into dancing. And that's why there's a power that is yours in Christ. That is yours. It is yours today to see that kind of work take effect in your life. You know, uh, um, you heard a reference to this earlier in Romans 2. Paul writes and says, "Don't, Don't presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience to you, not knowing that God's kindness was meant to lead you to repentance.
it was, I was 17 years old when the gospel broke into my life. Where I began to see my need for forgiveness in Christ on a cross was about me and my sin. It may be the only thing that I have in common with a man such as Jonathan Edwards, other than that we belong to the same Lord, but he was 17 when he had a profound religious experience, and he described it like this years later as a young man. There came into my mind so sweet a sense of the glorious majesty and grace of God that I know not how to express it. I seemed to see them both. See them both. I could see them both in sweet conjunction. Majesty and meekness joined together. It was a sweet and gentle and holy majesty. And also a majestic meekness, an awful sweetness, a high and great and holy gentleness. I've never come close to describing it so eloquently. But you see, that is the movement. When you begin to see the gospel take shape and and stretch for words to describe to yourself and then maybe to others. What God has done is he's broken into the darkness of your life. And like the sun on a, on a dark morning begins to crack the darkness as it begins to come over the horizon. It cracks and then it shatters the darkness. And as the gospel breaks into the darkness of your life, it cracks and then shatters the darkness. And everything that has that death grip on you. Which will still, you'll still show up in my life and yours. And I've got some patterns in my life that seem to just grow deeper instead of different. But it's not the same. And there's hope and there's joy and there's life and there's goodness and there's beauty where there was none. And that's what God does in a heart like yours. Remember who you were, but live out who you are with this vivid gospel giving you the tracks to run on, the direction to run, and the engine. (laughs) That's where the power, that's where the power to live upwardly into God's call upon your lives And we do that because we belong to one who has gone before us. Christ our Lord. He is the one who, it wasn't his sin, but it was his sacrifice and his serving out your and my penalty. And as he broke forth from a tomb into new life, Paul calls him the firstborn from among the dead. And you follow. He was first. And you follow. We follow. The bride of Christ following the groom. The one who who shattered the chains that held us. Defeating our enemy's greatest weapon, death. Something we will not only celebrate in a couple of weeks, but we celebrate today. It's the hope of the gospel is the risen Christ, who is your redeemer.
your great high priest, your righteousness by faith. Pray with me. Father, we would ask that by your spirit you would stretch our imaginations to be able to see things that are true and lovely and beautiful and to be so captured by them that our lives are different. Father, do that work in us for your glory. We thank you that with your lavish love you have met us in our need and Christ is our hope and the one who leads us forward, the one to whom we belong, the one who is our righteousness. In his name we pray, Christ our Lord. Amen.